You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, let me pray for us as we get into our passage tonight. Lord, thank you that you do give us grace and mercy in the Son of God and by the Spirit of God. And Father, we thank you for the grace of the Word of God, and we pray tonight that it would come to us and that we would receive it in the obedience of faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at Luke 11, 1 to 4. And one of the things I've been considering as we've made our way through this passage is that to be kingdom-oriented in the way that Luke 11 verses 1 to 4 demands, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit has to grow grow us up. Um, I think that's the point of this prayer in a very real sense. Because by praying this, we, we begin to realize how short we fall with regard to our kingdom commitments And so how does God get us there? Well, he uses means of corporate worship. He uses singing and and, and fellowship and, and Bible preaching, Bible teaching. But he also uses tests. He uses trials to exercise our faith. That was what John Newton was getting at in 1779. Now, he wrote this poem, which became a hymn in 1779, about seven years after he wrote Amazing Grace. The name of it was, I asked the Lord that I might grow. So if you think about the timeline, he was saved by the grace of God, his amazing grace. Seven years after writing the song, he he has this longing, this desire to mature, to grow in his faith. And so he asked the Lord to grow him in his faith. And God's response to him became this song. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yet more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answered prayer for for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. In other words... The Lord answered Newton's prayer for growth with tests and trials. But in those tests, 
temptations will arise. Temptations to respond to the test in an ungodly and sinful way. And hence, this aspect of the prayer. And so we have seen that this kingdom prayer is a taught prayer. It's a, it's a family prayer. It's a jealous prayer. It's a missional prayer. It's a dependent prayer. And this morning, we saw that it's a penitent prayer, right? Tonight, in our final line of this, this prayer, we see that it's a preemptive prayer, a preemptive prayer. Look with me in the last part of verse 4. And lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. So if the last part of this prayer was a prayer for pardon, the one we looked at this morning, and the one we looked at two Sunday nights ago was a prayer for provision, this is a prayer, or this part of the prayer is a prayer for protection. Now, most generally speaking, contextually, this aspect of the prayer is the desire to avoid falling into the situations where one needs forgiveness. You have to think about what just preceded that. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation. One theologian of many centuries ago, put it this way. The true disciple of Jesus would tremble at sin even if there were no hell. And in the general sense, this prayer is something like this. Lord, be my protector. Don't ever let me get into a situation that would devastate or ruin me. But at a more specific level... This is a challenging uh, text to interpret. And let me tell you why. This word for temptation, elsewhere in the New Testament, is the same word for test. It's the same exact word for test. So, for example, James, in James chapter 1, verse 2, says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing, there's that word, of your faith produces steadfastness. Here he is saying, it's good. Tests are good. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So James tells us we're to count it all joy when we're tested. It's the same word for temptation here. Not only that, James goes on to say that the one who endures these tests are blessed, which means, again, trials are good. James 1, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, same word for temptation, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And so there's a promise of blessing, even eternal life for those who persevere in the test. Now, it's not our perseverance that keeps us saved. It's God who keeps us persevering. And yet perseverance is the proof that we have been saved. Now, let me muddy the waters a moment. James 1.13 tells us, 
Let no one say when he is tempted. Same word. I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So the verb form of the word for test is the same word for temptation. So here's the question. Why would Jesus uh, tell us to pray for something that God's not going to do? There it says God doesn't tempt us. So, So why would he have us pray for something that God can't do? And on the other hand, if the sense is trials... Why should we pray that God would spare us from something which is for our good? That's how we muddy the waters on this question. Here's the answer. It's the only answer. Every test, which are good, and are meant to grow our capacity to hallow the Father's name, bring temptations with them. All right? Every test that God employs to grow our capacity to hallow his name, to grow our zeal for his kingdom, bring temptations with them. So, financial test can tempt us to question God's providence. Uh, The death of a loved one can tempt us to doubt God's goodness. Or the suffering of the righteous poor and the ease of the wicked rich can tempt us to question God's wisdom or his justice. Of course, God does test his people. He tested Abraham when he told him to to lay Isaac up on the altar. Psalm 11 verse 5 says, the Lord tests the righteous. You can't get any clearer than that. He tests us. So there's an exterior testing which God permits and ordains and allows, but there's an interior testing which comes from our sinful nature. You get that. So God tests us uh, externally, but in those tests, we have in our sinful nature internal tests. Impulses that sometimes are the wrong response to these tests. So Jesus teaches us to pray that we would not be led into temptation. That is, he tells us to ask the Father to spare us from tests that we would be doomed to fail. But if we do fail, it's not the Father's fault. It's our sinful desires that get exposed. It's these desires that entice us. Note again, James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured. He's using fishing imagery there. He's lured and he's enticed by his own desire. Now, desire in itself is not wrong, but of the, third, of the 38 times this word for desire is used in the New Testament, 35 of those 38 times, it's referring to sinful desire. So it may be a, a good desire that's, that's out of proportion, or it may be an illicit desire. 
So you may desire something that's good, like maybe you're married and you desire a child, but if that, if that desire takes on a controlling um, ethos in your life, a good desire has become an idolatrous desire. Or you may desire something that is wicked and ungodly. Whatever the case is, it's, it's sinful desire. And so, um, given a particular test of faith, which is a good thing, though it's not comfortable, we know that, tests are never comfortable. If I respond wrongly to that test, it's not God's fault. My sin is my fault. Sin is always an inside job. And then, again, James 1, 15, listen to this. James shows the havoc that sinful desire can wreak. He says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you see this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth. So he's imagining temptation and desire coming together and conceiving a child. That's the language he's using. So temptation appears to be the man in this situation. Desire appears to be the woman. And so temptation and desire come together. They conceive a child. And what is that child? Sin. All right? So desire comes and I give in to that, uh, or the temptation comes and I give in to that temptation because of my sinful desire. And that conceives a child. And that child is sin. And notice, and sin when it's fully grown, has a child. It brings forth death. So in other words, two births from three mutant generations. The mother is evil desire, the daughter is sin, and the granddaughter is death. If you allow sin to go unchecked, it grows and it bears a child, and that child is death. Not just physical death, but judgment, the second death. And so there are two potential uh, paths in testing. Test met with obedience and faith and endurance and love and gratitude. It makes us mature. It makes us complete. It's like a, a strength coach who... who who's out there running you on that track in one, 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 one o'clock in the afternoon in, in July, and you keep pressing and you keep pressing and you grow and you mature. But then there's another response, testing met with sinful desires, all right? So the test comes, and instead of responding in faith and obedience, we respond sinfully, and it leads to sin and to death ultimately, if that sin is not dealt with. So let's apply this before we come to the table. What do we do with this aspect, this final aspect of the prayer? Three things. First of all, Jesus is calling us to pray that God would set gracious limits on our trials and our testing. So there are the kinds of tests that would lead us to be tempted to, to really sin. And, and we're asking God to, to put uh, boundaries on that, to, to put limits on that. That is um, paraphrased by one scholar, a man named Godet, 
Lord, if the occasion of sinning presents itself, grant that the desire may not be found in me. If the desire is there, grant that the occasion may not present itself. That's an aspect of this prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Because again, that word could be lead us not into testing. And we would never pray that because we know tests are good. Second, Jesus teaches us to pray that the Lord would lead us into a greater delight in him than any kind of false delight we would be tempted by when we are tested. In other words, and this is an important principle for understanding how you respond to things, our ultimate treasure and what we love most will determine how we respond to our test. Okay? So think about an athlete again. Uh, an athlete, if he, if he desires to be highly conditioned, if he desires to be prepared for the fourth quarter, even when that coach puts a severe test on him in the heat of summer, he perseveres versus the guy who doesn't belong there. And his greatest desire is to be comfortable. And so when the test comes, he gives in and he quits, okay? And so we could apply that to what Jesus is saying here. And then third, true prayer like this, lead us not into temptation, puts hands and feet to the prayer as well. In other words, if you're truly crying this from your heart, you're going to make your own contribution to this prayer by doing everything you can to stay away from the temptations that lead you to sin. So a man who struggles with alcohol, he is going to put contributions to this prayer by not going into a bar or not bringing alcohol into his home or hanging out with people who drink. You're putting hands and feet to your prayer. Lord, I am serious. I do not want to sin. I don't want to be led to temptation in the midst of my, my test. And so I'm going to put hands and feet to my prayers. A person who struggles with pornography, this person is not going to subject himself or herself to anything that would tempt them to give in to that pornography. Or you don't mean it when you say, Lord, Lead us not into temptation. So let's close this out before we come to the table. This model kingdom prayer is how Jesus teaches us to pray. And the reason it's important is because it's so different than from the way we naturally pray. That's why we have to be taught. We need the word of God to sanctify our prayers. And I want you to think about this as we close. Every aspect of this prayer is fulfilled in some way in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All right? Uh, so he, he's the one who teaches us how to pray this. Um, it is in Christ that the Father's name is hallowed because it is in Christ we become sons and daughters of God. We become sons and daughters of God by God's adopt, adopting grace as the Son of God absorbs the debt we owe. Um, it is in Christ uh, that the kingdom of God will come. He is the king of the kingdom. We are the subjects. 
So it is in Jesus Christ, his victory, his once for all victory, and the exercise and the extension of his victory by the spirit and the gospel. He is the one who is the fulfillment of the living bread. He is the bread we pray for. He is our sustenance by which we eat and we never hunger again. He's the answer to our prayers for forgiveness. Forgiveness is found in the Father crushing the Son instead of us. And he's the means by which we overcome temptation. He was a great high priest without without sin. He, he was tempted in all points, yet without sin. So we have this merciful high priest who can tailor make his grace to fit every temptation we face. And also in beholding him is a means by which we overcome these temptations. But as always, Jesus the King uses means by which we do behold him. Thomas Brooks, the great Puritan, tells the story of five people who were discussing how to overcome temptation and how to overcome sin. The first one said, well, meditate on death. Meditate on the fruit of giving in to sin. Meditate on death. The second one said, well, that's good, but how about meditating on judgment? Yes, meditate on judgment. God is going to judge you if you do not repent of your sins. The third says, meditate on the joys of heaven. Meditate on eternal life with God in Jesus Christ. The fourth one said, well, you need to meditate on the torment of hell. Think about what it would be for all eternity to consciously suffer under the judgment of God in hell. And the fifth one said, all of these are good, but the more, most important way to overcome sin and to overcome the attractiveness of sin is to meditate on the blood and the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, it is that last motive which is the strongest. And, and as we come to the supper, um, that's essentially one of the central purposes of the supper is to remind ourselves of what Jesus Christ has done to secure our freedom from the law, our freedom from the wrath of God, and our freedom to obey God with gratitude and love and, and um, hope and awe. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.